Today's guest is Steve Wood. Steve is currently the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Johnson Supply. He's also a leadership and sales consultant and executive director and founding partner of the John Maxwell team, where he's a certified coach and speaker. Steve does leadership and sales consulting with Fortune 500 companies and small enterprises. Steve will tell his story about making it from a ranch in Texas to the corner office of some of the most recognized national brands in the industry. Enjoy this conversation with Steve Wood. Hi, this is Steve Wood, and you're listening to Change Your Filter with Paul Paul. Listeners, welcome back to the Change Your Filter podcast. I'm your host, Tall Paul, and today is a first. This is the first time I've ever interviewed a real-life cowboy on the Change Your Filter podcast. So, Steve Wood, welcome to the podcast. Well, Pa, I should have worn my I didn't know you was going to introduce me like that. I would have worn my hat. <laughs> you know, I so I wanted to wear my hat this morning. I have a it's my favorite hat. It was a gift to me from a friend. It hangs on the wall and I call it my vacation hat. And when I'm ready to go in vacation mode, I wear this cowboy hat and I wanted to wear it today to be to greet you as you came on. But my headphones won't fit over it. And the headphones are part of the process and the there sound and all that. But um, I was thinking back about watching Yellowstone and I wondered, did you watch Yellowstone? Yeah, I've, I've seen some of it. Uh, okay. I, I feel like I'm like one of the few in this population in the United that hasn't actually watched Yellowstone because people ask me all the time. I was like, well, no. Uh, uh, and so it reveals my my lack of, I, I don't watch a lot of television, uh, but I've understood that was a really great series. Well, I think it made people very, very curious about the reality of what it like, what it must be like to live on a ranch. And so right. I was trying to contrast from the show what a, you know, Wyoming, Montana ranch would look like versus a Texas ranch and ask you to talk about that. And I'm also trying to figure out like which character I could compare you to, but we'll figure all, all of that out later. So right. um, I, I appreciate you making this time today. I know you've, you've got a, a busy schedule and a, a big team and organization you're leading. Um, so thank you again. We'll we'll just go ahead and jump into it. I'll explain to listeners what led me to reach out to you a couple of weeks ago to invite you on. I was at an industry event, incidentally, down in Dallas, and there were kind of two schools of of people here. There were some established contractors and established business folks who'd been around the the industry for a long time. And we were telling kind of, you know, old war stories of people. And then there is a new group of young contractors coming up, you know, somewhere in between their thoroughly thirties and early forties. And I can't remember what led to it, but someone told a story about Steve Wood and it was a complete break in the group where this kind of more mature audience all had stories about Steve Wood. And then this group of young contractors from the West coast had never heard about Steve Wood. And I kind of found myself right in the middle where I knew kind of both groups and I had my own Steve Wood stories and it started kind of jogging my memory of the books I've read and the training I've done and the stories I've heard. I once heard a story. I met with a contractor in Grand Junction, Colorado. You probably remember Jim DeHart with Comfort Air, Grand Junction, but he remembers you. And he called me out to Grand Junction. I was living in Denver. He called me out there and he wanted to you know, meet with me about some changes or, you know, just, I guess, I don't know, just a, an account checkup, if you will. And I remember him kind of telling me that things aren't the way they used to be. Back in the day, Steve Wood flew on a private jet 
into Fruta, Colorado and landed it and took us out to play golf. And I just wondered, is that a true story? Is that how you rolled back in the day? You know, it, what, at that time, Lennox did have a jet. We, we had a private jet. And so when it came to business development, we, we did use it uh, a lot for, for our customers. Yeah. And that was, I'd say probably 60% of the use, or at least to my knowledge, that's what we used it for. So could have been, uh, I didn't fly. It's not like it was quote, my own private, you know, for my use, but if, if there was, there could have been, there could have been a customer event, something like that. But one thing I would say, uh, you know, when it comes to customers, they, they were really, uh, prioritized and they were VIP. So yeah. I hate to say it. Um, you was talking about kind of being in the industry a long time and knowing folks and those stories, they mean a lot when you hear them, that somebody yeah. remembers that. And, uh, sometimes I don't remember the exact event because you were, you got, you had the opportunity to do a lot of events, uh, and, and a lot of interactions with customers. And so I think what was important from those is I hear them today because I run across individuals say, hey, I remember whenever, you know, you flew us into Dallas and we had dinner that night or we went to a NASCAR uh, race and you hosted us. And I got to meet, you know, Kirk Bush or Rusty Wallace or whoever else that was memorable to them. And for some of them that was turning points either in their business or their relationships. And I think what strikes me about whether or not I totally remember it, because you know, when you're doing that and that's what you're doing a lot daily, kind of, you, you tend not to remember all the, all the events and all the things. But I think what struck me was those things are meaningful uh, to individuals, to customers. So I think what strikes me about that is, that it didn't mean something to him as a customer. Yeah. Yeah. He remembered and, and he may have dramatized it a little bit. I think he mentioned that you flew the plane and, and all of that, but no, just joking. But, uh, well, I didn't fly the plane, but I would pester the, uh, the pilots, uh, you know, cause you could go up and you could actually look in the cockpit Yeah, and, and I would ask, Hey, what's that button? What's this button? <laughs> look at you like, dude, you know, that's not for you to mess with that type thing. So, uh, but, uh, who knows? I may have told him I flew it. I mean, he, but the, oh, absolutely didn't fly. I couldn't, couldn't fly. I could ride. That's about it. Yep, absolutely. I'm, I'm joking, but I've already talked too much. I want to give you some time to tell your story. So back to this, you know, these two groups of individuals, you know, imagine that group who's never met you and doesn't know your story, you know, assume that's our listener today and tell the story of who is Steve Wood? How did you get into the trades? How did you end up staying for as long as you have? Take us back to those early days on the ranch or wherever you want to start. We want to hear that story. You know, uh, Paul, I wish I could share a story um, that sounds more deliberate. You know, boy, I had, I was in school, I had a plan and yeah, I did this. Um, I didn't not totally. Now I did, I was working on a ranch and that's the way I grew up. That's, that was my career. And, there was, and I, I talk about it in my book, that, that was one of the stories in there. Every, everything in the book, uh, Be Bodacious, was based on, loosely based on events and things and kind of, you know, written into a story form. But when I worked on the ranch, 
there was a decision that had to be made. Was I going to continue down that path or was I going to take a totally different road that was really unknown to me? I'd never known anything, but that type of work, that type of environment, working on a ranch, working on a farm, more blue collar type work, that type of thing. Was I going to kind of just totally shift and walk away from that, pursue something else? It's kind of this fork in the road. And what I've come to find out, that was the first big fork I took. I said, no, nope, I'm going to walk away from the ranch. I'm going to pursue something else. But you know what I did find out? That wasn't the last fork. <laughs> you know, so you talk about your younger listeners. Um, the first fork you take is not the last fork. There's others coming out, or, you know. But I think, you know, what drove me was maybe not as much as a deliberate plan, but a deliberate passion for growth, even though I didn't know exactly what that was, I did know, I thought there was a lot more to be had. Um, and it was interesting too, that even though I worked on a ranch for whatever reason, I'd always had this, and I, and I talk about it in the book and it, that part's true as well. Even as at that point had this thought of, what would it be like to really work in an office, being a corner office? Being a, a kind of have have the corner office, and that may sound a little shallow in a way, but for me, that's the only way I could could really relate this this unknown success, this unknown change, just what lies at the end of that fork was. And, and landing in an office was much different than landing in the seat of driving a cattle truck or you know whatever else I was doing that day or sitting on a tractor. So. That's really the way I related. That's where it started. So that first fork led to reaching out to discover other positions. So when I got into this industry, I had no formal education. Uh, the, the, you know, the colleges were a bit funny. They wanted money and they wanted good grades. I didn't have either one of those. So um, I was fortunate, though. I had a, a person that I knew that worked at Linux and I really didn't know totally what Linux was. I just, you know, we hadn't even had air conditioning very long in the house. I just kind of knew what air conditioning was, but not really anything about the industry, nothing about the industry. And he said, look, they're, they're hiring kind of intern positions or they're considering intern positions. And this was in Fort Worth. Linux used to have a facility in Fort Worth and there was a R&D lab and there was a factory. He said, look, if, if you want to do something else, you might want to talk to them and see what they have. So I said, sure, absolutely. I was like, all excited, extremely naive and showed up uh, at the chief engineer's office at the R&D lab that was doing, they were doing compressor research and heat pump research. And walked in, sat down, had no, no prior knowledge other than, I guess, my whole sales pitch at the time, as unformed as it was, look, I, I, I want to learn. I, I want to go someplace different. I would I don't have experience. I don't have, you know, probably what you're looking for, but I'll come to work for you and I'll darn near work for free. I mean, I'm just, I just, I want to come in, just give me a chance. That, that was really the story. Give me a chance. So he did, he agreed. He said, look, I'll give you 90 days. And really, we're going to 
if you get kind of the vote from the floor here, and those are the engineers, these were degreed engineers. If you get the vote from the floor that you, you're good, then you can stay. And he said, then at the end of the 90 days, if you want to go to college, which I did, I, I really did want to attend college. And he said, we'll pay for you to go to college. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's a dream. I have a job and I'll have somebody to pay for college, which I didn't have the money to pay for college. So that was where it began. And I started working in this unbelievable environment of, uh, in our industry of heating air in a R&D lab. Had no idea what was going on. <laughs> Absolutely. How no old idea. were you at this time? I was probably, let's say I was 19, okay. 19 years old. I was very, I was just out of high school and yeah. maybe, I think I actually had just turned 20 uh, to, to, and so I went to work for 575 a month, $575 per month farm. And so I continued to work on the weekends uh, on ranch and then also working We'd milk cows too. So get up on Saturday, go milk cows for some folks, work during the day on the ranch, go back that evening, milk cows again. So it was kind of seven days a week. But when you're young, it's interesting, you don't, that that doesn't seem out of place for you. And so at the end of the 90 days, I have to say I was really nervous because one of my counterparts had started at the same time that actually had some education. At the end of the 90 days, he was let go. And he'd started for me. So I, I was anxious. I was nervous. <laughs> I'm like, man, you know. Uh, but I will say this: uh, those engineers during that time, and this is something I, I just want to share with all the listeners: the importance of determining who you're going to take under your wing and who you're going to help grow. And boy, they did. I mean, they just grabbed me. They would work after. Yeah, you know, they'd spend time. They they'd work with me. Here's what this means. Here's what we're doing. And so. They, they really helped usher me, kind of shepherd me along. And at the end of nine days, I, I stayed. I was able, I got to okay, I stayed. And those folks continue to grow me. So I, I, that gave me a passion from that point of the importance of, of helping and growing others. Uh, and, and also it made me understand you can't grow others if, if, if you don't, if you haven't grown yourself. Right. I mean, they were giving me something they had. They couldn't give me something they didn't have. So they were able to give me something. But they also, I think, felt that they weren't wasting their time giving it to me. And I think that's what we always have to determine as leaders is who am I going to spend time with and who am I going to who am I going to give this to? How would a leader listening to this or a business owner or a manager, whoever this might be, what are some things they can look for? to know that they're investing in the right spot and they're investing in the right person. So at the time, obviously I didn't have this kind of insight because I was just a young guy, Yeah. but it did interest me is why, why did they choose to invest in me? And there's always this kind of uh, matrix and many people may have heard of it, but it's always been one that stuck with me. It's one thing to work with a person that, maybe can't do it like I was. I couldn't do it. I didn't have the knowledge, but I would do it. I wanted to do it. And so I'd say if you've got somebody that, that maybe can't do it, but would do it, that's a training question. So spend time with them, invest in them. But if you've got somebody, and I, I guess maybe my counterpart that let, got let go, or didn't, and they maybe fell more into this was 
he he could do it. He was further along. He could do it right then. As a matter of fact, he was kind of doing it. But the thing was, he he really wasn't coachable. They they I think they thought that you know maybe this is not the person that that maybe wouldn't do it. He could do it, but he wouldn't do the things that they really felt need to be done to maybe to be a successful engineer farm. So I think, you know, when I look at people, I always look at, can they do it? Will they do it? Because when I was actually working as a consultant and in training, that was one of the questions I'd always ask, you know, are you putting people in this that this is a training issue. So there's no need to put somebody in there. They're just not going to do it. Don't matter if you train them or not, they're not going to do it. They, they don't have the mindset. They don't have the desire. And so that's, that's not a training issue. That's more of a management issue where you need to, to find a, a replacement where you need to upgrade talent to somebody that, that will do and wants to do it versus somebody that you know they and the worst ones are those that can't do it and don't want to do it <laughs> they just don't you know and so yeah, to go back to the to the engineers at the lab because uh, i was always interested why i think they they saw a, a young man that they obviously could not do it but really had a hunger to do something to do something better to grow and so taking that from my career and forward in my career is I'm not near as much about when I hire people, I really am not very interested in their credentials. I, I really don't look to see it. Even today, if it doesn't really, if they've got a master's degree from one of the finest colleges in the country, I, I'm, I'm proud for them. I'm glad they did that. I think it took initiative. But that does not drive the decision to hire or not hire because some of the best individuals I've hired maybe didn't have those credentials, but they had hunger. They had desire. They couldn't do it, but they would do it. They just come from a different path. Not everybody comes down a path that, and, and particularly in the heating and air industry, you're going to find people that enter into this industry that maybe are a bit more entrepreneurial minded maybe not so much going to take the same course as going to the university, getting a four-year degree. They want to get out. They want to get into a trade. They want to learn, and they, but they do want to grow. And I think in the, particularly in HVAC, especially in contracting companies, is in there, there are some gold nuggets in those employees. There's some employees, what you see them doing today is not the potential for what they could do in the future. And I think the real ability is how do, you know to pick those out and invest in them. And I think that was one of the things that been able to, as I, you know, as I, you know, I think they saw me and as I've gone forward is to really try not to get enamored by, Hey, there's a template for somebody that's got potential. Right. I mean, potential comes in so many different packages. Matter of fact, I, I don't know who who all's going to listen to this, but I'm going to assume there's probably some business owners on here on this that that would be on this podcast. That perhaps from a credential standpoint of university credentials may not have them, but they've got great entrepreneurial credentials. Right. And so I think that's one of the, I know for a fact that's not, I don't think that is one of the things we look for in our business right now. 
whenever we're hiring future leaders, when we're hiring uh, new territory sales managers, we're looking for potential. And you can't really, it, you can't really get potential out of somebody that doesn't have potential. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that don't want it if they don't want to grow it. Uh, and so I, I think that's what I picked up from, from that. So in your 20s, you're in the R&D lab. People are investing in you. You're learning. You're growing. What did the span of your career look like from there? And then I have a ton of questions about contracting and leadership and all that. But let's yeah. let's talk about your career. How did you get to where you are today? Like what were the well, next? It was a crazy ride, you know. Yeah. So I was in the lab. I was in the R&D lab. And I, I, I believe they began to sense, okay, this guy's pretty good at what he's and wants to do it. And I was taking engineering degrees in college and that type of thing. And, but it just drove me nuts that, you know, you'd run a test and in our industry, most people don't know this, but you know, really to, to have a great test, you have to be within one, a 10th of a degree wet bulb, you know, uh, to, to actually call it a good, and you got to hold it for a certain amount of period. They just drove me nuts. I'm like, come on, this is, it was just way too exact for me. So I began to say, I probably wouldn't cut out as much for engineering. And I did like working with people more uh, as opposed to, to settings. So, uh, and I wanted things to move faster. And so I was able to transition out of there at that time, uh, Linux, we actually did high rise buildings. We were doing high-rise buildings, you know, 20, 30, 40 story buildings. We had some product. It was a water-cooled product that sat on the floors. So I got an opportunity to go work uh, as really just a service tech, uh, factory service tech, starting up that equipment in the, the high-rise projects. So those, those would come out. I'd go out and do the startup, spend time on the job. And then from there, moved into, you know, just factory uh, service rep. They got service consultants. Um, and then got the opportunity to get into sales and was territory manager and got my first shot into to sales uh, back in the 80s. And boy, that, was that a lot to learn. You know, again, it's like, how did I get from working on ranch to, you know, now I'm, now I'm selling heating and air. And it's interesting. Again, mentors come right along. It's the same thing. Just the story continued. Just like those engineers poured into me in the lab, there was a mentor there in Austin, Texas, a fine gentleman, uh, Bob McAllister. And uh, Bob McAllister was a territory manager there. He was, he was a bit more than that. He handled governmental and special accounts. And he just took me under my wing, under some wing. And he taught me and he, he showed me how to call on engineers, how to, how to do those things. So there's another story of, of someone being willing to invest in what they, what he saw, which sometimes I question why Bob saw that, but he saw me as, as potential, potential talent. And so he took Mender's wing. And, and so it, it's interesting. None of that would have happened, at least those two big moves, unless somebody would have said, Hey, I'm going to help pull this young man up. I'm going to invest in him. So I think that's one thing I'd say to, to leaders on the call is, you can't invest in everyone. You, you can't. So, but do invest in someone. Do invest in those, and be be careful who you invest in, who you spend your time, because your time is limited. But to to really reflect on who are you investing in as a leader, or as a business owner, who are you really investing in? Who are you working to pull up? So, 
those are the, the things that really formed me and formed my career is, you know, those instances where somebody helped pull me into something where I liked, I couldn't do it, but they showed me how to do it. How often do you find leaders, whether it's people on the contracting side, the wholesale side, the manufacturing side that are isolated because they don't invest in people? Well, I think, you know, so when I was consulting, you, you would find companies that had hit, hit a growth cap and it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't a potential cap. There was potential in the market because there were other companies in the market doing more business than they were doing. Um, I've, I've worked with contractors in the same market, selling the same products, <laughs> but one's growing and one's wildly successful where the other one's stagnant, not growing. And it always came down at some point, at some point in, in, in a business, it's going to come down to a leadership question, mm-hmm. not a, Hey, you know, do I have the right tools, the right platforms, the right product lines and all this? At some point, it becomes a leadership question. And so can you grow beyond just this entrepreneurial start, startup to more of an enterprise top model to where actually you, you build a team of leaders? So, I mean, if you have contracts, you don't want to be a 10, 20, 30, 40, $50 million, $100 million contracting business. I, I want to tell you, at some point along that journey, it becomes much more a leadership question than it, than anything. That's what takes, because I would always contract with, why is this, why is this contractor I'm working with doing 50 million a year and the other one here stuck at 4 million. Mm-hmm. And the difference between when you looked at them was the leadership and the, the, the way that it was the one at 50 million had a more enterprise model versus an entrepreneurial, Hey, I'm a, I'm a, small show it's i'm gonna everything rolls up to me so they were able to make that that turn into to a leadership uh, model yeah we'll talk about this a little bit later but when i think about all the tools and technology and software that's available to help people improve their business and systematize their business and to create enterprise businesses out of chaos and sometimes it's the leadership that makes the tools work it's not the tools I find that interesting. And we'll, we'll talk about software, but I want to talk about, I remember this is a, I don't know if a Steve-ism is a thing, but I remember you telling me early in my career to grow your leadership, you have to know your leadership. So if you're a contractor listening to this today or a professional in, in any capacity, um, how do you become aware of your leadership style so that you can work on it? What tools do you use to work on it? What's that process look like? Um, it's not just as simple as, picking up a stack of books, of course, that can be helpful. But what are some of those steps? How can people improve their leadership? You know, Paul, that's a great question because I had to cross that myself. So at first, my career was more uh, focused on just functional, getting to know how do I handle this high-rise project as a service taker? Now, how do I learn how to sell? How do I learn how to call on engineers and mechanical contractors and residential contractors? I'll never forget my first uh, leadership assignment, management assignment, was as a commercial manager and to grow the commercial business. And I pity the people that had to work for me 
<laughs> that first round. I, I never had anybody working for me or on my team. And so I just thought it was just about being a bigger sales guy, you know, just going out here and showing them how to sell and, and was very immature as a leader, very immature as a leader and began to, to really start thinking that there's something more here. There's something more. And some of my early involvement was, you know, picking up, I'll never forget during that period, picking up the seven habits, highly effective people. Most people have heard of that. Stephen Covey, it's a classic. That began to change my my thinking around, hey, something's here beyond what I'm doing. Then John Maxwell, as I began to look into John Maxwell's books, and I said, there's something different. There's Now what I'm missing is this leadership question because I, you know, when you're running, when you go from doing it all yourself to now, you're literally dependent on everybody else to do what they need to do well for you to be successful. And that that that's where I was. I mean, I moved from being really fully and kind of in charge of, of my results to now I had everybody I had on my team was going to with the sum total of that was going to determine my success. So that really began to gain a great interest in leadership and what it was. And I began to understand that position doesn't give you leadership. Right. So whenever I got that position, I didn't all of a sudden become a, a good leader. And that's one of the, 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 the big kind of challenges we run into. We get a position or we start a business and we make the assumption we're a leader. Mm-hmm. So leadership is a is a learned skill, and so for me, it was years and years of investment into leadership, and I decided I was going to learn it from the best. Yeah. So for me, I partnered up with John Maxwell, and and that was for me when the, it was by far the best thing I ever did because. I'm like, if you're going to learn, learn from the best. And he wasn't the only one. I, mean, I, I obviously reached out to other resources as well, but that was the, the main go-to. And so that began to transform from the leadership side. And I will say this, Paul, I think without a doubt, those learnings have had more, more impact on being able to, to grow a, a team grow a company, grow revenue, grow profitably, navigate all the challenges that come on, you know, because it's it's really the leadership that helped, the learnings there, uh, because, you know, and then, and it helped me really solidify what I wanted in a leadership team. You know, mm-hmm. I never forget, you know, John's pretty much, you know, what you learn a lot from that is, you know, you can you can train skills. You really can't train attitude. If somebody don't got the right attitude, you just need you, you, it's it's hard to fix attitude. Yeah. And so that was, I think, some of the things that really came out as I started moving from just an individual contributor as a territory manager, moving into a role of a much larger board, just recognition. If I'm going to win, my team's got to win. And to, to, for my team to win, I got to have the best team. I can't have an average team. I can't be an, an okay team. 
and that's when the hard work starts is whenever you say, okay, I'm going to have be committed to I have a team, I'm going to have the team in the market. Now, when you think about your time with John Maxwell in consulting, what are some of the foundational principles? I know that all of these are, you know, cataloged in all of his books and works and some of yours too. Um, but what are some of those foundational daily things that are baked into how you lead your teams, how you lead your organizations over the years? So I will say this, that John talks about in the 21 laws of leadership. He talks about the law of process. In other words, and that just says, you know, hey, leadership develops uh, daily, not in a day. So mm-hmm. in other words, meaning you've got to do it all the time. So prior to this call, I got off the a call with our entire team here at uh, Johnson Supply. We're, we're talking, the topic was communication, how to become a better communicator, how to not only communicate, but then connect. And that's one of John Maxwell's uh, trainings. But, and we do it weekly. We, it's weekly. We're not going through business spreadsheets. We're not going through, we're talking about how to get better at selling, communicating, leading. And we focus every week. It's a, it's a focus. And I think that's really important. So that's the law of process. Number one, it's continual. It's not, it's not a one-time send your people to a workshop. For my case, I do it myself because I have to look if I, you know, I learn it when I have to learn it to deliver it, it, it's better and it inspires the team to learn it. So the law of process, I think, you know, next is John talked about the law of magnetism. And I just tell people that maybe are listening to this right now is if you, if you don't have the people around you that you want, it may be because you're not the kind of people, <laughs> kind of person they want to be around. I mean, yeah. it's it, it, so John talks about the law of magnetism. He says, who you are is who you attract. Who you are is who. So look, if you're a hard worker and you're and you're a learner and you're a leader and you've got passion for growth and you are, you're a person. If you want people of integrity working for you, you've got to be a person of integrity. So the law of magnetism says for you to attract the team you want, you have to be, you have to be that first. So that, that was, that's one that has been, I would say a a real uh, key point uh, that I embrace. John talks about the law of the inner circle. And, and that's really, you're going to be, your success will be determined by those closest to you is what he yeah. talks about. I mean, for, so regardless of where you're at, you may be a, a new contractor and you may have a couple of trucks. You're only going to be as good as those in your, that are most close to you. And so this desire to always upgrade, to grow, but you can't grow your inner circle beyond what you are. I mean, so if you want to attract great people to your, to your inner circle and great leaders, you just got to be a great leader. And so it takes work. And so, and I have found that I will tell you, like right now, Johnson supply, I couldn't be prouder of the leadership team here. And if, you know, I always joke with them. You guys are so good. I've just about been able to work myself into another phony baloney job here. So, and, because they literally, they, they, they handle it. I mean, I've, I've discovered being through a few 
or several different leadership roles and challenges. You know when you start arriving, when you're just not, when things, not only do you think are running smooth, but they're actually running smooth. You've got great people in the front. You're not having to get involved. You're not having to, to you know, worry about diving into their work every day. And so that, that having that right inner circle, I know I, I just say, you know, as I've gone in, I would just share anybody that takes a new role, takes over a new or wants to grow. The first place you should analyze is your inner circle. Yeah. Who's around you? And until you get the right people in that inner circle, uh, you, you know, you're going to be limited by how far you go. So mid-career, you're figuring these things out. You find yourself at least one corner office. Yeah. And you, <laughs> you, you could have locked it in right there and just worked right. on yourself and your team and hung out in Houston. But you continue to kind of move up to the next corner office and the next corner yeah. office. Talk to me about as you as your immediate team got bigger and bigger, and now you're solving problems across the country. Talk to me about some of the challenges, some of the opportunities. Tell me some stories about kind of the the big problems you've solved through your executive career. <laughs> big problems. Oh boy, I want to say this right. You know. The big problems are generally people problems, yeah. uh, and and I don't I, I want to come off right on this, but if you want to know, and it very looking back, it seemed like where I had great leaders, but I didn't have big, I didn't have big problems. Yeah. <laughs> where I didn't have great leaders, I tend to have it's like there was fires popping up all the time, or uh, you know there was a turnover of. You, you didn't have the best team. You just had a team. You had a team that were, at, were kind of operating at the level of that leader. So I think that was the biggest thing. You know, if you see, what, what did you see, you know, kind of as the challenges and thing. When you move to the, and a lot of contractors, they're going to get to that level. They just got to really, they're going to be as good as their, their leadership team, whatever that looks like. And, I mean, you know, whatever scale, whatever the business they're in. So I, I, hopefully that answers. But that was probably my biggest learning as I took organizations. First thing is look at the leadership team, get the right team. And sometimes that team may just be you. Well, that means you got to be the best team. You got to be the best leader. But then get all the best service techs or the best salespeople. And something else, Paul, I think that you, you, can, you can whine about it or you can do something. And I guess one of my main mantras I have is you're never going to whine yourself to better. So if you can't keep people, stop whining and find out why you can't keep people. Right. And I can't say, you know, it's, there's there's reasons why you can't get people. There's a reason why somebody goes down the street for the same money, less money, or a little more money. Sometimes people just aren't smart that make those. But most of the time, they're going for other reasons. Yeah. So I think that the one thing I learned early, early on, is no matter what role I was in, is to decide you're not going to whine. <laughs> But that you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna work, and you're gonna work with what you have. So, 
that's an interesting thing too that you know when i was consulting particularly and this was a contractor's you, you maybe go on and on well if i had this if i had that or if i had this and the one question as a consultant i always ask look i, I get all that but let me ask you is there one thing you could do not somebody else is there one thing you could do to just improve that situation a little mm-hmm. and if and what would that be and that was where you could quickly determine if that if that individual had the resources to actually accept responsibility to sell because if they said well, there's really nothing you know the economy's bad till the economy gets bad you know i we can't get better so too many businesses at times make it become um think that they only get better when everything else gets better let's talk about the economy. Let's talk about tough times. There's a difference between managing during tough times and leading during tough times. When I first met you, I didn't know how tough it was in the industry. This is about 2008. Yeah, that was a tough time. It was a tough time. And mm-hmm. I remember meeting with, uh, I'll never forget his name, is Walter Friend, Colorado Springs, Colorado. I knock yeah. on his door, I introduced myself, and he looked at me and said, you just moved your family across the country to work in this industry. Do you know what is going on in this industry? And he was a big new construction contractor, but I remember meeting you and I remember the task you were given and kind of what you were leading. And it was an unbelievably uh, ambitious and aggressive, just business (laughs) uh, program, whatever you want to call it. And I think people probably looked at you like you were kind of crazy. You took what was probably a yeah. five or 10 year goal and you put it into about 24 months and took a, an entire organization and got them marching toward the goal and eventually achieved it. So not to give away too many of the details, but tell me about leading during tough times and tell me some stories about what it was like in 2008 when you basically stood out and said, we're doing this. Well, so Paul, that was another one of these forks in the road. You know, where you, I think it's a big aha moment. So 2008, it began to turn down, leading a, a, a large organization at the time. I, I don't remember what the revenue was, but it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, the call come down from the top, we're going to have to cut, we're going to have to cut headcount. And not by little, we're talking a lot. So that means you're going to need to lay people off, shut down some operations, this type of thing. And it wasn't like you need to think about it. You need to do it. You need to bring us the list by the end of the day, you know, type thing. And so we did it and I did it and I got on an airplane and I spent a week out laying people off, shutting down particular operations. And I will say this, I sat down on the plane coming back from Baltimore. I'll never forget that. Don't know why I had the Western half of North America. Not too sure why I ended up in Baltimore other than I think we just was kind of handling, kind of sharing what we had to do, the two, the two of us that were doing this. But I do remember this. I remember as Baltimore, I remember I was sitting on the plane and I'm not a particularly emotional guy, but I've I become pretty emotional. It was kind of the weight of the week of all those families, all those individuals, all those lives that were affected that you know, I had to sit with and said, you know, look, we're shutting you down. We don't need you anymore. We're laying you off. And uh, literally 
Yeah, it was it was kind of it was a tearful moment. I almost hate to break my facade, but it was a tearful moment for me. And on the on the plane back, begin to realize there was only one really, at least in in my part of the business, there was only one reason. It, it, it was only one person responded. It was me. I was the leader. I was running it, and there was no reason for it because we we didn't have all the business. We had some of the business. There was still business out there. There was still business. And if we would have just understood early that we need to grow our business, not be content with and not whine. We were doing a lot of whining. We were doing a lot of whining instead of really doing a lot of and I committed, I said I do there was one thing that will prevent this from ever happening, and that's gaining new business. Gaining more business. Because the problem wasn't that there wasn't enough business. It's just we didn't have enough of the business. So when times get slow, this was the uh, moment. It still sticks with it. It's still the same thing operating under the day. When business gets slow, you just need more slow business. I, I mean, it's just simple. Yeah. And that become a life-changing thing. So I did. I took on, was willing and took on the initiative to grow the business, I guess, almost two and a half to three times what the company had ever done on business growth and agreed to do it in a, in a time period. So that means that you really had to, but that fueled the passion. I wanted it. And I desired it because I didn't ever want to see a time where I'd have to go do that again. Yeah. And then from that, I learned there are some things we did well during that. And there's some things didn't do well. And there's some things we did too heavy handed. And there's some things where we got ahead of ourselves. Yeah, we got there, but I will say this. Sometimes you get to the goal and you can do it. But I would I would always encourage leaders to say, hey, I got there. We made it happen. But always look at how did we make it happen? Right. And is that sustainable? And do I need to, to modify that to create a, a model, a mindset that is sustainable? And so that was kind of the next piece that we did was kind of take it beyond that. Because yeah. in that crisis moment, because we weren't ahead of it, we had to force it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just to kind of segue a little bit, you know, Contractor Commerce, we're a software company. All software companies like mine kind of owe a thank you and a point to the Salesforce.com group for kind of creating the software as a service category. And right. I remember you talking about Salesforce before it was a commercially known company. And being one of the first companies to really integrate and roll out any thoughts or learnings during that period of time, how did you get, how did you manage the actual business growth while also completely changing the way that sales reps would interact with their customers and use technology? I mean, that was a, you were a lot of things to a lot of different people, but to a lot of people, you were probably the guy who was making them change the most. How did you manage that or any memories of that? Well, I do remember that. One of the other directors, VPs, congratulated me for being the most hated man in the company. <laughs> That's it. Yes. Your name was on all the dashboards <laughs> well, and all the reports. I'm like, yep. well, thanks. And then I, but then, you know, that stuck with me. I thought it was kind of funny Yeah. in a way. But then I also thought, well, there's a reason for that. And I just mentioned it. So we had to force some things because we put ourselves in a position where we weren't ahead of it. We weren't doing the things we needed to going into the, to the challenging time 
to, to carry us through that. So we had to force it. We had to make change quickly. And so as I saw, like launching Salesforce, obviously people weren't using it. People didn't want to do that. They were afraid of it. Uh, I remember you know, just talking about, hey, we're going to bring on a cloud-based program. Well, companies, nobody, you know, this was new juju. Nobody wanted oh, yeah. anything cloud-based. And so there was a lot of uh, force there. But I did know one thing. There was absolutely no way we were going to do this if we didn't do something different and if we didn't do something better and different from our our competitors and we needed a way for us to know what 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 opportunities were available to us I, in other words i knew the data i got the sales reports i knew sales were declining i knew you know i could i could look i could see what was, I, I couldn't see what was on the other side of sales yeah i, I didn't have any way of seeing the opportunities that could be business. And so what Salesforce did for us, it was just the platform that facilitated the ability to know your inventory of opportunities. Yeah. So in our case, as a manufacturer, we had to know which companies were out there in every market and how much equipment they were buying. Yeah. And then once you knew that, <clears throat> then you could form your your strategy to go talk to them about, hey, you, you, you know, you could really better your life by by making this choice to move to our product versus what you've been been doing. And so one thing we did learn from that is some people were shocked to see you show up. <laughs> I mean, because right. not that many people were really in a planned, very orchestrated way out asking for business. Yeah. So that that's what it, it, but I will say this, you got to be careful of all the shiny objects. There's a lot of shiny objects out there right now. Oh yeah. And, um, I was real leery of Salesforce being a shiny object that in, I will say Salesforce, it, we were using our company now. This was my fourth launch of Salesforce in an enterprise. It, it's a waste of money unless you're going to absolutely embrace it and use it properly. Yeah. In other words, buying a license from Salesforce, turn it on and send it to your sales team, tell them to log sales calls, absolutely will do nothing for you. Um, we So here at Johnson Glide, we do not use it to log sales calls. Now, what's interesting, I tell them, I, I really don't care if you log a sales call. I've seen salespeople that, remember heck, my most successful sales professionals, some of them didn't log a sales call one. Right. And then, there were some of them that were very successful. They did log every one of them. So what I did determine, that's not the difference between a successful sales professional and an unsuccessful. There was something else in there. And it was their their pursuit, their desire to, to go after opportunities to grow the business. And, and I think that's one thing when you're talking about in downturns, the, the one thing if I could say to all the business owners on here, there will be a downturn. Now, I mean, I'm not trying to sound like negative Nelly on this thing, but at some point, you know, things go up, it, it, you know, it, it, it curves down. The only way, your only insurance against that is new business. Right. So in the contracting business, just like you are in the manufacturing or the wholesale business, you're in charge of that new business. And it's, once you realize that and it's, 
and that's what you focus on. So at our company right here, we focus on new business. That is what we do. We bring in for one reason. We really, really believe without a doubt that a customer will better their business by doing business with us. Mm -hmm. But we have to make our business worthy of that. Right. And, and, and we have, we truly believe that if a customer makes a choice to leave one supplier, one distributor and come to us, they're going to make more money. It, they're going to be more efficient. And so we are always pursuing new business. As a matter of fact, we just had to talk with our team. You know, people have heard, well, there's equipment shortages in the industry. Well, yeah, that's true. There are. But that doesn't mean there's not equipment to sell. Right. <laughs> I mean, and so the team was like, well, do you slow down? Do you kind of pause? Absolutely not. This is not the time to pause. This is the time to charge forward. This is the time. This is the time of opportunity right now, not when it declines. It's, you know, the time of opportunity back in 2008 was in 2006 and 2007, not in 2008. I now, I mean, so because you, you're behind the curve. So that's that's one thing I'd say that you, you'd ask what can a company do is to make sure they stay focused on growth. I will say this, Paul, that was one of the challenges when I had opportunity to work with contractors in the consulting side that, that fell into this false belief. But I think I want to get it to maybe 10 million, 15 million or whatever their number was. And I'm going to be good. Mm -hmm. Well, the day you choose not to grow is the day you're choosing to decline. Right. And so I think that was my biggest takeaway is really in business, there is no just getting to the top of the mountain and say, I'm going to sit here. As you went out into consulting, you worked with contractors, you worked with Fortune 500s. I've seen you on stages all over, at least from afar, virtually, of course. Um, what are some of the who are some of the most remarkable leaders you've met and what are some of those characteristics, those non-negotiables that you see with your kind of dream team of leaders that you've met over the years? Well, they had a mindset. Uh, there's just, there was a total difference in mindset between those that I've worked with contractors that, you know, literally were in excess of a hundred million dollars in revenue a year. I've worked with them and, work with them every place to have to a million dollars a year or less, you know, as they're getting started. But no matter where they started, there was a mindset difference. There, there was more of a feast mentality than a famine mentality. You, you know, and I always kind of look at, and Paul, you were a territory manager, you're out selling. And so one of the things I always look for in a customer, if they just felt like if, if all her do was whine about the competitors, they really didn't have a feast mentality. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, if you listen to them and they were just all paced on, here's what I'm going to do to grow the business. Can you guys partner with me? They weren't beating you up on, you know, hey, you set up another customer in the market or they were concerned about this competitor. And I think that's the big difference. The, these leaders were focused on their company, their growth, not their competitors. I can tell you right here at John Spot, we really don't focus on the competitors. Now, I, well, I do hope they're talking about us in their sales meetings. Sure. I do hope we're a bit of a problem for them. And I hope we're the topic of their discussions, but we really don't 
focus on them. We just run our business. And, and I think that's the big difference. The next is in these companies is they had the right people. They were relentless about getting people. And they didn't try to get people on the cheap. You know, they, if they look for the best talent, they're yeah. willing to pay for the best talent. And that, that, I think it was it. And then lastly was leadership. They, they had a leadership mindset versus just a, a management mindset. There's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I have found in interviewing contractors and other executives that when it comes to talent, you have to get out over your skis a little bit. You have mm-hmm. to get out ahead of it. You are going to hire someone that's more expensive than what you think you can afford, which is one more reason listeners to invest in your leadership. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Paul, one of the things that we yeah, share with my leaders here is guys, we don't fill positions. We hire talent. Mm-hmm. So like if you, you, know, you got an open position, that's fine. We're not filling that position. We're just looking for best, the best talent in the market. And we've been fortunate. There's been some out, I mean, some unbelievable talent, you know, that's, that's come and joined the team. And I think that's anytime you put your in a, a, a when you get in a position, you're saying, "Oh man, I just got to fill that spot. I got to have somebody." You know, you're you're you just got to get ahead of the curve by always when you start getting good talent, you you always have you can take up the slack. If something does open, you've got the capability to absorb in that for a while until you actually can get the best talent in place. You know, it's, it's interesting. You made me daydream a moment for a moment about job postings and how I write job postings. And I don't know where I'm going with this other than to say, when you read a job posting, you're listing the job, the duties, the technical requirements, and then, oh, it'd be nice to have, you know, the ability to work well with others and all those sort of things. It'd be really interesting to write a job description for all those characteristics first, as that is the job. And in addition to the job, occasionally you've got to sell some things and build some things around right. Anyways, um, a couple more questions around out here because I know you've got, I imagine, a, a big team to get back to. How do you balance yourself and leading yourself when you are investing in and leading other people and leading an organization? And I ask you that question because I'm reminded of a story about, I believe it was a hot dog in the Philadelphia airport. Yeah. Every time I'm in an airport and I'm, <laughs> I'm tired and it's Friday and I'm coming home, I have a couple, three or four, like go-to things that I just want to, you know, enjoy before I get on the plane. But anyways, how do you take care of yourself while growing a healthy business? Because I have found that for me, it's, it's feast or famine. It's one or the other. Like I'm, I am, my business is healthier over the course of the 12, last 12 months, but I'm not healthier over the last 12 months, right. always coming, you know, one or the other. So how do you do that? How do you balance it? Well, don't always do this well, by the way. Um, I think as many people on this call, myself personally, I like to work. Mm-hmm. I've retired twice. Right. You've sailed, you literally sailed off in a sailboat. Yeah, we, and I wouldn't say it was really retirement. I just always said, yeah, hey, it's better to use that word than I quit. Yeah. And, and it, it's, from an HR standpoint, it's appropriate. Well, I mean, it is, hey, I'm going to retire. It really, for me, it was, I'm going to take some time and do some things to grow personally. Mm-hmm. And and that that was broad, but you talk about the, the hot dog in 
in the airport. And that was very, that's a true story. I'd been traveling on the road and um, it was 1 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. I had to get back for another meeting that morning at the corporate office and had already had the discussion about, you know, taking, you know, retiring, taking time off. And I was only 57 at the time. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I was really at the normal retirement age. And so still kicking that around. Is that really what I want to do? Do I want to stay here doing that? And then I was sitting there at night reflecting, eating this cold hot dog in Philadelphia. I think it's Terminal F out there. It's a Philadelphia airport's not a great airport to be stuck in anyway. And yeah. there are certain terminals that are the worst. That's where I was. And I sat there, you know what? I'm like, this This is what life's bringing me, a cold hot dog in the Philadelphia airport. I don't have to be doing this. And maybe I've gone a little stale on my leadership. And maybe I've gone a little stale on my career. So I'm going to take the opportunity to go do do something to grow. I'm going to take a little pause. Personal life, I think you mentioned it, for business owners and people in careers, you start to look at that hot dog and say, this is my life. <laughs> I mean, I don't have a lot of personal. This has become it. So I'm not saying this for everybody, but for me, we I took a, a pause, literally did, and had my own consulting company, speaking company, and I have reflected back on that and traveled a lot. I mean, literally did, like you said, sailed away, traveled, sailed, you know, and during that time though, the focus is on growing uh, professionally and personally and would not, would absolutely not give for doing that. Again, I actually did that twice. And as you never know what's last going to bring you. I've worked with individuals that waited till they were 65, worked like a dog, had no personal life, ignored their family up until they're 65, 66, retire, and then they're dead or something happens. They're not able to do the things they thought they might be able to do in their late 60s or 70s. I just went to visit a friend that was in that situation. And so part of mine was, I'm going to do these things right now because at 57, I was able to do a lot, felt felt a lot. And so we did them. So we took a piece, just kind of, nobody says you have to wait to retire. I mean, the government don't make it easy, but right. you, you can do it when you want to. So we did that and then went back to work, went back to work for Lennox. And it was a wonderful time and took another pause before I came here at Johnson's Life. And it's interesting. And I just say, do life on your terms. And that's all I'd say to leaders. Uh, my book, Be Bodacious, I go back and read my own book, Be Bodacious, do life on your own terms, not on everybody else's terms. And so for me, I chose to do that, and that's led to a great life, great career, ended up here at John Supply, which, which was, it's like, it's just everything fell into place. So we took our retirement, we don't regret, you know, we're not at a point where I'm saying, oh, yeah, I'm at this age, I need to retire. I'm like, we We've had those experiences, those times, those family times. That's when my family was at the time I needed to spend time with them, wanted to be time spend with them, and had the opportunity to do that. Now I'm not in a position to be able to do that. I have two. I have uh, twin granddaughters that have Rett syndrome. That's been a, a debilitating uh, disease for them. Uh, and when I left Lennox the last time, that's the reason I left uh, the little granddaughters 
they just needed our full, they needed us to, to be close to them to help. So we changed, made a complete change of life, sold our home, moved to South Houston, and said, okay, this is what's important. We, but we're not at a point where we have to say, man, you know, life stinks. I worked all that time and I never got to do this, never got to do that. We feel fully equipped, fully ready to take that on. And that's what we were doing until, and then this opportunity came up at Johnson Supply, which is great. I'm home every night. We can help out. And so I think that's a, you know, in personal leadership, it's take personal leadership, lead yeah. yourself and know, and I was probably more deliberate as I got more mature and older, is that I decided there were things I wanted to do, but I will say each of those paths led to a next career, a, a better career, and I come out smarter. Yeah. So during the first pause, you know, pause, I was able to travel with John Maxwell into different countries. I was able to, you know, spend time, did a uh, experience in Africa that was absolutely mind bending, you know, the rain dance. I remember you telling me a story about a rain dance. It just, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, and working with people in the slums of Nairobi and things like that, and, you know, leadership conferences there. So none of that could have happened if I would just said, Hey, I'm just going to run life as scripted or as we think scripted and wait till I'm 65 quote retire. If I'd have done that, none of that would have been, and I'm not saying not trying to sound braggadocious there at all. It's just a reflection back. I'm glad I did those. And I think for business owners and you said, you know, what would you do on self-leadership? I think self-leadership is very deliberate leadership and it's not going to feel, it's going to feel a little weird at the time. Hey, when you're leaving a great paying job to a no paying job, (laughs) you know, it's, 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 it's not comfortable. So, but that was for me, that was always part of, you know, what are you doing? to shift outside your comfort zone. You know, uh, Paul, you, you, on the list, you'd kind of talk about what's the eight second rule. And, yeah. you know, in the book, it talks about that's from bull riding days, back in bull riding. One thing I learned from bull riding, it's a short ride. It's always short for me. It's only an eight second ride. It, it's so when you, when you hop on a bull, you used to go to a rodeo, you see these guys hop on a bull. They only have to stay on for eight seconds, but all of them have to pay a, a fee to enter to ride. See, I always thought that was dumb when I first got in the road. I, I thought they paid you to get on it. No, they don't. You pay to get on the bull. That's almost stupid sounding. <laughs> All that money goes into a pot that the producer takes his cut and then that's that's the prize money. But what I found out, you can have a seven second ride and there's no prize money. Right. There's just no prize money on a seven second ride. You got to go eight to even get a score to get a shot. And one of the things that always taught me in life is there's no there's no commission, there's no profits from a sale that was almost made. There's no fulfillment out of a life that you almost did you know, that you wanted to do. Uh, so I, I, that's been really something that's guided me. You know, sometimes the timing's like right now. I, I, and are you are you willing to take the ride? Mm-hmm. Are you and so in business? You know, we just made a commitment right here in our business to double our revenue over the next five years. 
and that's a very public, very stated. We will double our revenue over five years. People say you're nuts. You're going into a this or that it takes money to grow. Well, guess what? It does, but you won't do it until you decide to do it. You got to take the ride. You got to get out of the stands. You got to be saying, you know, like for us, we're in the top thirty distributors in the in the nation. Okay, we won't stay there long if you don't decide to grow. I mean, you you can't just ride with the market. So we've made a deliberate decision to grow. We believe it's the right thing, not only for our company, our employees, we're employee-owned, for our employees to really realize some of their what they want, we need to grow. And our customers need us to grow. And our manufacturers that represent need us to grow. So I think that's, you know, you got to get out of stands. You, it, look, it's the easy thing would have been to say, okay, well, we're just going to kind of ride this thing along. And as long as all the officers here, we all get our bonuses and everything, we're going to be happy. Well, that would underperformed the potential of the business. So I think that's one thing I'd say, Paul, is just encourage these. If you're a business owner and you're listening, don't 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 ever just take and say, "I'm just going to set it out and set in the stands." You got to take the ride. You got to get out. Steve, for listeners who want to get in touch with you, get to know you more or know more about Johnson Supply, what's the best way they can get in touch with you? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, um, it, yeah, they can can reach out to me here at Houston, Texas. Probably the best way is just drop me an email. Uh, it's swood at johnsonsupply.com. And that, that's, that's probably the best way. I, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and would willingly reach out to any contractor or any company, whatever, that could bring somebody to. So, This episode, like all episodes, is brought to you by Contractor Commerce, plug-and-play online stores for contractors. We see a future where every contractor has an online store.